Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, global keynote speaker, best-selling author, and co-founder of Skills Camp, Hamza Khan. Hey, what you drinking? I love it. I, I love it. And, and that is the thought, right? It's, it's, it's kind of a personal constitution. It is a personal anchor and it allows you to decide what's right, what's consistent. And uh, you are doing that work in, in, in spades, man. Uh, congratulations to you. How, now, how do you, how did you come to the decision that this was the right path for you to be on? Because you, you had a pretty safe, pretty assured background career was looking good. I'm sure your mom and dad were, they were pretty proud. And this path that you're on now, I'm going to tell you, it's not, it's not quite as safe as the brochure described. No, no, no. And I was just joking about this to my wife this morning. I said, I think I have the worst personality type for this line of work. I'm very socially awkward, very introverted, very shy. I struggle with imposter syndrome, which I'm reframing now as like internalized self-hate or maybe internalized capitalism, if you want to go there. But the job that I have requires me to do podcasts and, and be heard by complete strangers and judged by them to stand on stages in front of hundreds and thousands of people to write books, to be consumed by others. And so from a stress perspective, it's very difficult. And I didn't actually choose this. I was very fortunate to have mentors in my life, to have guides, much like yourself, sages who appear at the right moment to say, the thing that you're doing is needed. You're good at it. The world needs it. And hey, you can also get paid for this. So it has been one iteration after another away from running a team, uh, working within organizations, and just feeling the call to action, essentially, to share this message. And I think the message at its core, when you really peel back all the layers, whether I'm talking about leadership or burnout or change or you know, organizational behavior, I think that the fundamental idea is to choose fear over love. If we want to get really simple with it, like I get to ask this question sometimes, you know, if you could put any phrase on a billboard for the world to see what would it be? And I think mine would be lead with love, choose love. Oh, I love because that. the prevailing sentiment that has guided us thus far is failing most of us. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be working, does it? <laughs> no, by all measures. This is the, the most unequal time in human history. Yeah. You know, one of the things I shared with a group actually just last week, and this has really consumed a lot of my thinking right now. And this is work from Laura Barrett's work, uh, How Emotions Are Made, where she basically says, the difference between fear and excitement is the story that you tell yourself about what's on the other side. Because the body is actually going through the exact same experiences. Your heart rate, your heart rate increases, you lose breath. I mean, the exact same physical you know, manifestation. The only difference between my being afraid of what's going to happen and my being excited about what's going to happen is the story that I tell myself uh, about what's on the other side of this experience. How, how does that fit with kind of the work that you do and the story that you just shared about? Hey, I'm not so I'm not so sure what's out here. Wow. Um, 
I think, I think the word you used earlier was like kindred spirits or soulmates. And you said, I think we could become, and I, I want to build on that and say, I think we are because we've arrived at similar conclusions from different perspectives. I arrived at a similar conclusion through my work researching occupational burnout and stress. And I cite the, the research of Dr. Kelly McGonigal ran a, a landmark study through Yale University, which found that reframing a situation as one that produces good stress instead of mm. bad stress is enough to change your physical reaction to it. And this is documented in her book, The Upside of Stress. Highly recommend uh, the listeners check it out. And this is fascinating, right? Because for some listeners, you're hearing this and thinking, wow, there's, there's such a thing as good stress. I thought all stress was created equal, but it's not. We've been conditioned to believe that stress equals distress, which is stress that causes danger, suffering, and pain. But eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, is a measure of how engaged you are with the things that bring growth and happiness and meaning into your life. And I do this sometimes. Whenever I'm taking on a new project, for instance, I'm currently in an executive coaching program. Before I added this to my life, I drew up a T-chart and I wrote down all the reasons why this was going to cause me stress. And in one column, I had distress. In one column, I had eustress. Distress was full of reasons. And then I looked at those lists. I looked at that list and I said, yeah, but is this really causing me pain, suffering, trouble, and danger? And by the end of that like half an hour exercise, maybe there's like one or two things remaining just in terms of like time and money investment, but everything else had moved over to eustress. And I was like, ooh, this feels good, man. Like I'm excited about this. Let's do this. Let's go head first into this program. So can confirm, you know, what, what you're hearing uh, Galen speak about, what you're hearing, hearing me speak about uh, in terms of the, the difference between good stress and bad stress, fear and excitement, it's real and it's measurable. Wow, I love it, I love it. You know, one of the things that really struck me, because, you know, usually before I bring guests on, especially guests who I don't know, you know, intimately or personally, you know, I ask, you know, like, who are some of your favorite musicians? You know, what kind of music do you like, like to listen to? And you're, you're like, I like Jay-Z, I like Kanye West, and then I like Lonnie Smith, and I like punk rock, heavy metal, R&B country. So you basically just like, if it's music, you like it. <laughs> I, I'm a fan of love. I'm a fan of anybody expressing from a place of love. I'm a fan of anybody and anything that is coming from a place of true artistry, creativity, wanting to express a truth to them. I, I'm deeply drawn to, to R&B, to hip hop, to rap. You know, those those are my favorite genres of music at the moment. But you know, it, it's very fluid, much like this podcast, much like whiskey, jazz, and leadership. I think that we're all works in progress, and depending on where we are and what we're going on, what we're going through in our lives, our our choices change. I've recently relocated to New York, so I'm definitely feeling stronger kinship with the birthplace of hip hop, and so. I think right now I'm my, my Spotify playlist looks like a lot of New York hip hop at the moment, but that might change in a couple of months. But I, I think there's something about hip hop as a genre, but more so what it represents, where it began. And I think the, the potential it holds for unification of people from across backgrounds is very exciting to me. It, it, it's more than a genre. It's more than, you know, a form of art to me. It's a, it's a movement truly. And I'm just so, so glad to be living at a time when artists are coming into their own. I don't mm -hmm. think we've ever seen a Jay-Z before. We've This template, this blueprint, I should say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hasn't been written. It's happening in real time. So it's, it's very, it's very ex exciting for me to watch. You know, one of those, one of the things that I am just, it's fascinating for me to watch is this transition of 
when people are able to transcend the genre that they're in to move over. So you got a Jay-Z who today he's, he's, he's bigger than just a, a hip hop artist, right? You, you've got, you've got a Will Smith who is, you know, foundation in, in, in hip hop, but he's bigger than a hip hop artist. Queen Latifah, bigger than a hip hop artist. You've got so many people that are able to transition and transcend this space that they're in. And you talk about jazz, just trying to figure out how do I get from where I am to where I need to be? What's your thought about all of these, these artists? I mean, there are several people that uh, if you ask the younger generation, if they've heard, you know, Queen Latifah uh, hip hop song, and they would look at you crazy. Queen Latifah is the actress. What are you, what are you talking about? Will Smith, Will Smith used to rap. What are you talking about? So, what what are your thoughts about that, sir? You have uh, you've asked the question of all questions, man. And and I, I apologize if I'm going to ramble here a bit. I've been thinking about this deeply for years, and I don't think I've ever had the chance to share my perspective on this. So, this is still new for me. I recently transitioned from Toronto, Canada, to New York, but I was actually born in New York. I was born in Queens, mm -hmm. and then my family moved to Canada when I was, I think, six or seven. I spent most of my life there. I'm now 35. I've just come back. I've been here for a month. And the first thing that struck me about being in New York was the inequality. I knew that the social stratification, the racial stratification here was real. I didn't know it was this palpable. And what it has left me with is a feeling of, wow, if only people knew just how much someone like Jay-Z had to overcome to become a rapper, to become a successful rapper, to become a businessman, and then to become a billionaire. It's to me, it's I, I see that ascent. I see Will Smith's ascent. I've seen Queen Latifah's ascent in the same way that I imagine people would revere Greek gods. They've done something truly heroic, tr truly Herculean. And you, you can't really appreciate just how big of a leap that is until you've spent some time in the continental United States and, and experienced firsthand just the degree to which certain groups in society are oppressed, are systemically displaced. And I'm saying this from a place of authority because my parents were like that too. My parents, they came to this country with practically nothing. And they built uh, a life for themselves, for myself, my sister, through a convenience store, selling confectionery items and beverages and making you know pennies on the dollar in terms of profit. But here I am later, getting to enjoy a life in which I get to travel the world, stay at the finest hotels, speak to audiences and have my ideas resonate and shift organizations and agendas and leaders. Uh, I get to enjoy living in New York. I, I, I feel like you know, life is good right now. I'm experiencing a great deal of privilege. I'm on this podcast, recording it with you. Both of us are are well-educated. You, sir, you're going the distance. I don't believe, I think a PhD is happening very soon, right? <laughs> oh, no, absolutely not. My wife made it very clear. My, my wife made it very clear that the moment I signed registration for a PhD program, she's going to slip divorce papers right underneath that. So, that is not going to happen. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you, you don't want to get that letter. <laughs> yeah. You know. So, uh, okay. All, all of this is to say it's, um, we, we have an idea of what it took to become these people of, of the sacrifices that they made to, to occupy the level of success that they're enjoying. But I think the younger generation needs to, and I'm saying this for myself as well, needs to appreciate how much of the runway was extended by these people. I mean, a good example is you mentioned Lonnie Liston Smith who did the sample for Jay-Z's uh, Dead Presidents. 
great song, a song that I think represents sonically how I form thoughts and how I, I meditate on things. It's, it's just a beautiful song. But in order for Jay-Z to produce that song, Lonnie Liston-Smith had to produce that song. In order for Lonnie Liston-Smith to, to have the, the, the opportunity to produce that, so many other leaders, whether in music and civil rights, had, had to you know, do things in order to create this succession for these expressions to take place. So I feel very lucky to be alive at a time when all of the all of this groundwork has been laid, all of this runway has been extended for myself and then hopefully my children in the future, my nieces and nephews, your children to fly because we were able to run because our ancestors were able to walk, crawl and take it all the way back to the most dormant of positions. Fantastic. It's just it's it's just surreal to me, man. And I think I've I've watched Nope the movie, Jordan Peele's latest movie, I think I've watched it 10 times. I'm not even kidding. Seven in theaters, three uh, video on demand. And it is just surreal. Like Again, talk about creating permission space for me as a creative of color to now be able to express my truth, to tell a story unapologetically, to situate myself within narratives, to reference a piece of work and say, wow, like that can be critically and commercially successful and unapologetically Black. That to me is just, wow, for the first time in my life, I'm starting to feel like I can be me. I don't have to translate. I don't have to code switch. I don't have to present myself as anything other than the sum total of my ancestry and my intersectionality. And it's just so special, man. It really wow. is. Okay. So I, I, I was prepared to ask you more about this leadership philosophy that you shared, but now you got, you're, you're, you're tap dancing on the space that I am really, really intrigued by. And it's this idea of code switching. Educate the audience as to what you mean by code switching, because I'd like to have just a small conversation with you about what that is and the agility that's required to do it. And then whether or not it's even good <laughs> to do. I first became aware of code switching when I was running my own agency. And uh, it was a very diverse agency at the time. I mean, two founders of color. One of our ex account executives said, uh, Hamza, you have a client voice. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? They're like, well, you speak to us one way. You're over here, you know, in your throwback hat and your shorts and, you know, you're throwing around slang and, and you're dapping people up in the audience, in, in the office, clearly have like a, like a swagger about you over here. But the minute you get on a phone call with a client, your voice becomes, for lack of a better word, whiter. The, the downward descents and the punctuation is a little more tighter. It's me essentially trying to sound more acceptable in a space in which I don't feel safe to be me. That's what code switching is. Code switching is changing the way you speak, the way you present yourself to be more acceptable, to appear safer in a group where you might not necessarily feel welcome and safe. Wow. And I absolutely, I absolutely get it, right? I, you spent 30 years in corporate America, working for some of the biggest brands on the planet. So trust, trust me, I get it. But now my, my, my question is, first of all, th there, is a, there is an intellectual agility that's required to be able to do that. And to your point, it really came out of a defense mechanism, right? How do I stay safe? And hats off to people who are able to do that. But now the question is, is it healthy for people to have to do that uh, over a long period of time with their life, with their fortune, with their career weighing in the balance? How healthy is it for people to feel like they have to code switch? I realize that I speak from a place of privilege here where I get to 
I'm, I'm rewarded for being more like myself. It's a strange thing. I, I've spent most of my life optimizing for the opposite. I've, uh, I've optimized for being acceptable in traditionally white male spaces, for lack of a better yeah. phrase, not, not, not to, to reduce it too far down, but I've, I've been optimized for being in a boardroom and presenting my ideas in a way that will be approved by people who've traditionally held the ability to approve those decisions. But now, I'm rewarded for the opposite. I'm rewarded for being more like myself. And it's requiring a lot. It's requiring me to overcome uh, the fears yeah. of, 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 of being myself. And I'm only starting to now realize just how much stress I was under for most of my career, how heavy that was. Yeah. I'm still uncomfortable. I think I'm still doing it on this call right now. I still think I'm in some subconscious ways, I'm holding back from saying some of the things that I truly want to say out of fear that this podcast, which has a very wide audience, might be listened to by some people who follow me on social media, who I currently depend on for my livelihood. Yeah. So man, if you are listening to this right now and you are subduing yourself and you are code switching and changing who you are to fit into a place, first of all, I see you, I acknowledge what you're going through. I hope, and I, I pray that it will get better for you because trust me, you know, myself, uh, Galen, we're working overtime to try and change the very systems that would have you do that in the first place. I don't know if it's going to happen in our lifetime, but best believe for our kids, our great grandkids, they're going to live in a world where, look, just look at the progress we've made in the continental United States in the last 100 years. Uh, I think I think that you can look forward to a future in which you're not going to have to carry this invisible burden mm. uh, that I'm sure you have carried on for a lot longer than I have, sir. Yeah, I'll tell you, man, you've got some really, really strong clients in your resume. I mean, you got the Microsofts of the world, PepsiCo, uh, LinkedIn, Deloitte, Salesforce. I mean, go on and on. I'll tell you the time that I came face to face with how much code switching I had been doing in my career. I think I, I think I kind of was aware, but the, the time that I came face to face with it was uh, some work that I was doing with uh, there's an organization called the Executive Leadership Council and fantastic organization. Their two primary objectives is to, number one, elevate more African-Americans into the C-suite of corporations, Fortune 500 corporations. So that's kind of one arm. The other arm and their objective is to create more African-American representation on corporate boards. So people are already in the C-suite. How do we get them on boards? And I was asked to do some training for them. And the first training that I ever did with them, I go on and everyone, this was a virtual program, everyone on the screen, 50, 60 people, well, they were all black and brown people, all black and brown faces. And I, you know, as, a, as I normally do, I was trying to communicate a, uh, communicate a leadership point and I was coming, trying to come up with a reference of something that I knew that they had all seen that could demonstrate my point. And the absolute perfect reference was this movie that was iconic in the black community. And it's the movie, it's the movie, The Five Heartbeats. And I made the reference to The Five Heartbeats and everyone got it. And it was like, I was like, now ordinarily that reference would have come to my mind but I would have gone to the second best reference because I would have recognized my audience might not have identified with that movie reference. So I probably would have gone to The Godfather, right? 
because that's a more mainstream, universal, still would have connected to my point, but it would have been the second best reference. And so I, I bring that back to this idea of code switching. I wonder if there are a number of leaders who are black, brown, maybe even women who are constantly looking for their second best reference to communicate a point rather than just being themselves and sharing that point and then putting the onus on the leaders to up their game so that I can give you my best rather than giving you my second best. I, I, I don't know. I mean, this is kind of a thought. And like I said, that that's something that happened to me personally where I, I realized, hey, wait a second. I don't have to go to my second best. I can just come with the full energy of what I'm trying to communicate. Yeah, what, uh, what could that look like, right? I, I think about the earlier days of my career when I would like feverishly research references made by my coworkers. I didn't watch How I Met Your Mother, but I was like, I need to be able to make jokes about this. I need to be able to understand this. I don't watch hockey, but I need to be able to watch hockey because everybody's talking about this right now. Sure. Blink-182, Sum 41, I know some of their songs, but like, if I want to be part of this conversation, I need to know it. Yeah, and I would again hold back, and you know, people would associate me with hip hop and with Jay Z, and you know, with Bollywood, and and my very limited sharing of what made me unique. But could we live in a world where tomorrow everybody's free to bring their whole selves to work, and the onus is on everyone else to learn about them? Yeah, maybe because that's how it's been done traditionally. Like, <laughs> I, I, you, and I have had to be the ones who've had to find the second best references versus just making the reference and then having somebody in the audience who isn't familiar with the five heartbeats say, "Oh, like I really want to understand the point that he made. Let me go and look this up." Up or even ask a question, right? I mean, because the whole thing that you, you've got me talking more about myself than I normally do in my it, on my podcast. So look at you, dude. Look at you. I have more questions for you, but I just want to make yeah. sure we're okay for time. Yeah. yeah, you know, so there is an onus on the communicator to make sure that the point is being made, right? At the same time, there should be a freedom to have a conversation because that's the only way that we elevate. Whatever it is that we're trying to do, we're, we're, we're needing to elevate. And if I'm always searching for my second best, then first of all, that is reducing my respect and appreciation for the audience because I'm internally saying, well, they'll never get it, right? They'll never get it. So I want to bring this back to a leadership question. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what is the responsibility of the leader in your opinion for creating the environment where everything that we've been talking about is at best, okay, but at worst, not frowned upon. Wow. Okay. The, the, the leader's responsibility first and foremost is to create more leaders. Mm. And, um, you know, when you really meditate on that idea, everything about our leadership philosophy, about it being change friendly, about it being inherently diverse and inclusive, about it uh, centering the human within the organization becomes apparent. I've been thinking about this idea of like the status quo and what what is the status quo. And the status quo isn't avoiding a decision. The status, status quo is a continuous decision. Mm. And nothing changes if nothing changes. So <sighs> the leader needs to create an environment in which people feel comfortable challenging the leader's decisions, questioning the leader's decisions. They need to feel comfortable being themselves and not 
picking the second best reference, not editing themselves. Because if you edit yourself enough, nothing will remain. Mm. And what happens to organizations in which people are afraid to be themselves is it has a negative impact on uh, engagement, a negative impact on productivity, a negative impact on innovation, the very things that are required to innovate, to anticipate the future, and then respond to exogenous changes to move forward in pursuit of whatever's going to get them over the chasm of time. So it's this counterintuitive thing that has unfortunately capsized most organizations in our lifetime. And McKinsey estimates that by the year 2027, end of the decade, before the end of the decade, actually 75% of Fortune 500 companies are going to go belly up, which is a wild stat when you think about it. And the reason why that's going to happen is because leaders are holding on to the old paradigm. They're keeping the status quo. They're maintaining the, the, the continuous decision of they are the ones who are at the top of the organization and everybody else must look up and you know, seek their blessings and run everything by them. It's a completely disabled organization, if you ask me. And I don't like using that word, but I mean, it's disabled in the sense where nobody's able to be themselves. Mm. Because nobody's able to be themselves, every other metric is affected. Forget about engage, forget about thriving. People aren't even engaged at that point. Right. I read something wild the other day, like uh, 70% of senior leaders are seriously considering quitting their jobs because of the need to reprioritize wellness. So this this whole labor shortage that we're talking about ad nauseum, the great resignation is affecting everybody. Everybody's going through this collective awakening at the moment, which is there's something wrong with the way organizations are being run. What is it that we need to change? And the answer is quite simple. It's, it's every individual, it's every leader in the organization who's operating from the old playbook of leadership, which isn't leadership at all. It's management. The way that modern companies run is the way factories used to run. And the way factories used to run were inspired by the way militaries were meant to run. But we're not fighting wars in Microsoft, right? If you're working at uh, you know, Chipotle right now, we're not, we're not going to battle. We're, we're, we're feeding people over here. So there, there's a way to do this that puts people first. And it's a very easy thing to do. I actually, you know what? I take that back. Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. It's a simple thing to do. It's not an easy thing to do. And I'll end on this point over here. There's something counterintuitive about being an effective leader and being a modern leader. It's to not lead at all. Sorry, it's not manage at all. And it's to actually make yourself obsolete, which flies in the face of everything that you come into the organization with. You think that when you become a leader, you need to hold on to power. But if you hold on to power, the research shows that it corrupts. It, it, it makes you more narcissistic. It makes you more Machiavellian. It even produces subclinical levels of psychopathy in one study that I think spanned over like 17 years in Germany. You actually want to give that away. You want to create a, an ecosystem where more, more leaders are being produced because if everybody is experiencing feelings of thriving and self-actualization, if there are more leaders, the effectiveness of the organization improves overall. And you don't actually lose your standing in the organization. You actually get promoted because you've created an infrastructure. You've documented processes. You've produced some sort of training that's getting the most effectiveness out of people. And so you're actually given more responsibilities as you shed them. Wow. You are absolutely brilliant, man. And I love the passion that you have for uh, igniting and releasing more energy into the world. This is exactly what we need. We need to have more people who are excited about how do we get more out of people? Not from a, you know, one of the things I talk about is um, the difference between have to and want to. And uh, anyone can do anything. We can each do anything we have to do, right? There, there are stories of mothers lift, lifting cars in order to save their babies because they have to, right? But what's that thing that 
that you want to do? What's that thing that you lose track of time when you do it? What's that thing that if, if, if your manager asks you to do three, give you three points of inspiration in this thing, yeah, you'll give him the three, but you'll probably give him five more that you didn't, that he didn't know that you needed because it's, it's consistent with your want to. That's the real task of leadership. How do you tap into, uh, that inspiration that will make people want to be engaged, want to give you that discretionary effort. And you are, you are all over that. Uh, Thank you, you, sir. That means, that means the world to me coming from you, somebody who's doing what I hope to be doing, somebody who's doing something for as long as I hope to be able to do it. And even longer, I mean, in the same way that Lonnie Liston Smith extended the runway of possibilities for Jay-Z, you, sir, are extending the runway of possibilities for me. I see you. I see what you're doing with the podcast, your coaching business, your speaking business. I was just on your website earlier today and I'm like, damn, like, I can describe myself this way. I can put myself out this way. Like, this is wild. I can just come out swinging and be like, yeah, I, I am the, I'm not an expert. I'm the expert. Boy, that's it. That's it. Well, dude, I have so enjoyed this conversation, man. If you got some more time, man, I got to bring you into the VIP room. My VIPs are going to, my VIPs are going to love you. Oh my God. They're going to love you. Uh, hey, w- while we're on this side of the velvet rope, though, w- what final thoughts do you have for just my general listeners? I mean, you know, we're, we're in 20 different countries. We're, 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 we're trying to make this thing happen. What final words do you have for our general podcast listeners about how they can do this leadership thing for real? Wow. Let's look at something that's in the zeitgeist at the moment, this term quiet quitting. And, and, and sir, you, you described earlier the situation in which, you know, your leader asks you for three things, but if you're engaged, you go above and beyond, you give them five. Quiet quitting is being projected onto the populace as a, as a bad thing that we're doing. You know, we're, we're not going above and beyond. We're just fulfilling the base requirements of our job. I'm going to say to the audience right now, don't buy into this because you have to ask whenever the status quo is being disrupted and people are trying to revert the status quo back to what it was, you have to ask, who does it benefit? Mm -hmm. And like I said earlier, the status quo isn't avoiding a decision. It's a continuous decision. So the way the world was pre-pandemic is that employers extracted disproportionate value from you as an employee, assuming you're an employee listening to this, and they wanted you to go above and beyond and not compensate you accordingly. So if you are in the process of quiet quitting, which I hate that term so much, just know that you're putting yourself first. It's something that your leader should have done a long time ago. So hold your leadership to better standards. The way that you passionately, hopefully passionately show up to the polls every four years and say who you believe has a better idea for how the world should work for the, for the, for the you know all the days and minutes and weeks and months that exist between those four years you're actually in a structure that behaves much more like an autocracy. If you work in a corporation, it's not democratic, let's be real, but the best companies in the world are ones in which leaders have cued into this idea that we have changed. Human beings have fundamentally changed. So if you're out there right now feeling like your boss is abusive, your boss is negligent, your boss is micromanaging you, just know that that age is coming to an end. Be patient. There's there's many people like myself, uh, like 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 Galen over here, who are thinking about a more human centric, compassionate, and perhaps even non romantic, love based future of work, and it is coming. Wow, man! I tell you, you, you remind me of this quote from uh, D Hawk, and D Hawk uh, was the founder and the CEO emeritus of Visa, Visa Credit Card, Visa Credit Card Association. 
And uh, he says that control is not leadership. Management is not leadership. Leadership is leadership. If you seek to lead, if you seek to lead, invest at least 50% of your time in leading yourself, your own purpose, ethics, principles, motivations, conduct, invest at least 20% of your time in leading those with authority over you and 15% of your time in leading your peers. And I just love, I just love the way you are bringing that sentiment to life in everything that you're doing. Man, I am just so excited that uh, that you were listening uh, to Whiskey Jazz and Leadership and, and made a point to have Alexis get with Audrey to make this conversation happen. Man, uh, man, I'll tell you, this is this is enough for free, man. I got to bring you into the VIP room. So raise your, raise your, raise your glass and we're going to cheers into the other side. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives. Cheers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.